to the second edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 22nd and 23rd of September 2020. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. Once again, I'm joined on this podcast by Mark Sennett, the CEO of Western Business Media. Hi, Mark. Morning, Brian. Great to be back. Really enjoyed the first episode. And, you know, this one's looking even better. We've got a number of speakers lined up and some big stories. So what have we got lined up for everyone today? Good morning, Mark. Yes, we've got an interview with Ian Moore, the CEO, the CEO at the FIA, which is it's great to have Ian on board, obviously giving his comment on what's happening in the industry at the moment. And also Salvi Vitozzi from Apollo Fire Detectors. Yeah, and of course, we'll be joined for our regular legal update um, from Warren Spencer, who's Managing Director of Blackhurst Bud and has done more prosecutions under the fire safety order than anybody else. So, Brian, we normally start with covering a couple of key news stories. So what's... Um, come to your attention this week that FSM have covered? Well, one of the main stories, Mark, uh, actually concerns and actually straddles the two industries, if you like, security and fire. Um, it's emanated from the Home Office from James Brokenshire, the security minister, and he's written to uh, Roy Wilshire at the National Fire Chiefs Council, as well as Ian Stevens from the Fire Services Management Committee, and indeed all of the chief fire officers. Uh, why has he done that? Well, the main focus is to outline the additional support that central government's currently offering, uh, offering and affording to the fire and rescue services across the country during the lockdown. Yeah, and, you know, I read through that article and there's a number of things they talked about ways we work together. In the past, the FBU has um, been critical about firefighters having to work with the ambulance services too much. That goes back to the, the old dispute to do with firefighters paying pensions. So it's great to see that everyone's working together in this time of national crisis. And also, he obviously outlines to Roy Wilshire the need to ensure that proper PPE is provided, doesn't he? And that frontline firefighters get relevant testing for COVID-19. So good olive branch, I'd say, been offered by the government. And they'll certainly be wanting to get off on the right right foot and the best possible foot with the NFCC and the FBU. Yes, indeed. The point about PPE, I think, is quite crucial, Mark. Of course, in the security sector, we've had the push for... Uh, key and critical worker status of security personnel, emergency services personnel in general. And it's nice to see the government now affording the testing to frontline firefighters, some of whom have had to uh, go into lockdown due to uh, having, having symptoms of COVID-19. Yeah, it's, it's an important story to start off with, but you know, like a smooth transition, we can go into a bit more government news that I've spotted. Uh, it's almost as though we've practised this, Brian. So the ASFP, the Association for Specialist Fire Protection, has welcomed the government's plans to reform building safety and undertake a major review of the building regulations. It's a move that the ASFP feels is long overdue. So this article, we talk about the SFP supporting the new building safety bill and the new fire safety bill. So as part of the government's plans, they say they're planning to establish new regulators for building safety and construction projects, as well as establishing a new construction product standards committee. The ASFP says is looking forward to working with these new organisations to further improve the safety of the built environment. Robert Jenrick, who's the Secretary of State for Housing, has also declared a major holistic review of the building regulations will be undertaken, which will result in the development of a new digital-based document. This full review process is expected to take about five years to complete, so not going to be a quick task. And the Secretary of State has also announced that there'll be further revisions to approve document B, and these will be published in May. 
long overdue and we've been waiting for these findings for a while. This will mandate the use of sprinklers and consistent signage in new high-rise flats over 11 metres tall. So ASFP have had their say on this and their CEO, Narone, who we know well, he said in a quote, we hope the establishment of a new building safety regulator will greatly strengthen the enforcement regime across the entire built environment and welcome the move to design to improve oversight of product and third party certification standards. Changes in the building materials and construction processes have transformed the way in which our building stock behaves in fire and poor workmanship and light touch enforcement of the building regulations has frequently resulted in buildings that offer poor levels of fire protection. So, Brian, you know, my takeaway from this is some really key things they're outlining there, you know, updates to approved document B finally being published, you know, full review um, for, from the Secretary of State on the building regulations, which is going to take five years. But the ASFP seems very happy with the proposals to the new building safety bill and fire safety bill. So that's massive news across there. Two major bits of legislation. Uh, further review and you know ASAP are very knowledgeable in this area so it's good that they seem happy at the first steps but I'm sure knowing Niall he'll uh, be keen to get as much information have as much input as possible as quickly as possible. Yeah one thing I'd like to add Mark coming back to the story I was talking about there uh, it's been reported that HMRC has issued new guidance to employers and employees to ensure that retained staff are not ruled ineligible for the COVID-19 loss of earnings benefit this is a very positive uh, step I think. Yeah, massively so. So, you know, not insignificant news coming out, you know, whether it be from um, James Brokenshire, whether it be here from the Secretary of State. So, yeah, some good news to get us started. So we'll make a transition now while we're carrying on the legal front. And I'd like to introduce our first guest this week, which is Warren Spencer. I mentioned Warren before. He was obviously our first guest on the inaugural episode of the podcast. Warren is the Managing Director of Black Curse Bud Solicitors and... He has prosecuted more cases under the fire safety order than anybody else. Morning, Warren. Great to hear from you again. How are you? Morning, Mark. I'm good, thank you. And yourself? Yeah, good. I mean, let's get straight into it. I mean, we, a couple of weeks ago, published an article from you um, and, you know, you told FSM that over a quarter of all prosecutions brought under the fire safety order since 2009 involve an element of domestic living, despite the order not being intended to apply to domestic premises. Just so we touch on this, can you go into a bit more detail for our listeners on this, please? Yeah, I think the first thing that surprises me about those statistics are that the fire safety order was never intended to apply to domestic premises. Um, as we know, the, the premises that have been uh, inspected and audited are the likes of HMOs, flats, purpose-built flats, converted flats. Um, and because there are so many, it, it's surprising that the order has been used because the Housing Act applies to these premises as well. And you would have thought when the order, certainly when the order was drafted, that it was the Housing Act that would be the legislation that would be used as a tool for enforcement and not the fire safety order. So what's interesting to me is that fire safety officers have been taking up the role effectively, very often, of the housing officer. 
Now, one of the things you say in your article is that um, over 35% of all cases brought before the courts involve prosecutions involving HMOs, flats, hostels and other sleeping accommodation. Um, can you talk to us in a bit more detail about the types of premises um, that you managed to pull information on on your report? So HMOs accounts for 17, almost 17.5% of all prosecutions, which I would suggest is low-level housing and meaning vulnerable residents. So HMOs is a, is a difficult area because they are very often house, large houses which have been converted into bed sits, single flats, etc. And because they're converted, not purpose-built, don't necessarily have the relevant fire safety provision. So 17.5% is a lot of prosecutions. And the other aspect that I certainly had in the earlier years of, uh, from, of the prosecutions, 2006 to 2012-14, is living, a, living above the shop, is, for want of a better phrase. So flats above commercial premises, again, mainly to do with escape routes, mainly to do with fire compartmentation, but again, premises which weren't necessarily designed for living accommodation as its first purpose, mainly it was storerooms above shops, etc. And that's been converted into living accommodation. People living in those, those um, accommodation, again, low-level housing, and uh, again, very often vulnerable residents. And those are the sorts of prosecutions that I was doing week on week from 2006 to 2012-14. And, and that aspect, I think, is, is not really what the fire safety order was about when it was drafted in 2004. Now, just for those people that aren't clear, obviously you've done some extensive work on this. How have you managed to compile these statistics? Where have you got the information from? Two sources. The government, since 2009, have produced figures in relation to their enforcement so enforcement covers the issuing of enforcement notices, the enforcement, the issuing of prohibition notices and prosecutions. Uh, and that's freely available. Those that, that information is freely available. It's not in the best format. And you kind of have to uh, analyze it a little bit deeper than just looking at the spreadsheets that, that the government provide. The second source is my own recording of cases. Uh, for some reason, best, I, I don't know why, I started recording everything about my cases in 2006 on a spreadsheet and I've continued to do so. And so now that I've got, you know, some real data in terms of volume, sort of to 200 odd cases, uh, it's easy to, refer to, to reference my findings against the government statistics. And of course, the government statistics don't tell the whole story because they only started uh, collating in March 2009 and, and publishing in 2010. So there's a, there's a little bit of a three-year gap in this government statistics um, but they outline the types of premises that have been prosecuted the articles under the fire safety order which have been prosecuted i.e the offenses and uh, now of course we've got the government statistics on the audits of the fire services themselves and how they operate and, and how good they are at enforcing so there's a good there's good information out there from the government However, it's not in the best format, and I think it, it, it probably needs refining as to how it's reported to get some consistency across fire services across the country. 
Now, obviously, on the first episode of the podcast, you're one of our featured guests, and you know we're thrilled that you're coming back every episode now to give us a, a legal update and share statistics like this. But we were talking off air a moment ago about the fire safety bill, you know, following on from our conversation last time, and, and you shared with me that you were a bit concerned that it could be said that the review, you know, the fire safety bill is almost a reaction to Grenfell rather than the view, review of the fire safety order that needs to be. And I thought it was interesting thought process you had there could you share your views on that with our listeners well of course the first thing to say is it's early days and the, the first aspect of the fire safety bill that's been published relates to an area of the order which has been confusing from the start and that is fire doors um, it's also gone a little bit further to introduce the concept of the structure of premises and things attached to, to the structure which obviously I, I think it, it relates to cladding uh, and is a direct result of the Grenfell disaster. What I am concerned with and uh, I'm anxious that, that this it, it doesn't happen is, is that the order is simply reviewed in the light of Grenfell. Obviously, we've got to learn lessons from Grenfell. I don't disagree with that. But the order is now, is in October, is going to be 15 years old or 14 years old, sorry. And... Um, there are parts of it that need refining. And my concern with, for example, the Hackett report was that the original draft that was produced kind of suggested wholesale changes to the industry. And then the final draft, I, in my opinion, was, was watered down to apply to complex buildings, 10 stories and above, etc. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that this review is not just dealing with the consequences of, of, of Grenfell, but also looking at the order and the areas it needs to look at. Because as I point out in the article, uh, purpose-built flats only account for a 4% of all prosecutions. So that, that's a very, very low number. And to start devising legislation around one particular type of premises, i.e. purpose-built flats, high-rise flats, um, I, I think would be a missed opportunity, especially as there are a limited number of these flats. I don't in any way try to play down the importance of safety in those buildings. I'm merely pointing out that there are other buildings with safety issues as well. So, Warren, obviously, moving forward, just as I said, you're back with us recurring, and we'd like to get questions from you, from our audience. So if you'd like to send in questions to Warren for the next episode or future episodes, you just need to go to Twitter or LinkedIn and use the hashtag FSM podcast. But in the meantime, Warren, how can people get in touch with you if they want to drop you a line in the meantime? Um, a lot of people get through to me on LinkedIn. I will uh, usually accept uh, any invites from people within the fire safety industry. And I produce articles. I have uh, my website, firesafetylaw.co.uk, uh, which I have blogs on and articles like the article we've been talking about this morning. Um, obviously, if it's anything uh, legal, that you want legal advice on i'm a firm called blackhurst bud which is based in blackpool and uh, i can be contacted by googling blackhurst bud solicitors and if you want to find out more information on the article that we've run just go to the fs matters website the, the fire safety matters website which is www.fsmatters.com and just click on the features tab and warren's article will be right at the top there well thanks warren and we look forward to seeing you again on the next episode thanks mark stay well
Well, Brian, we've got a couple more news stories that we wanted to cover. And the first one I wanted to go over is an article that you've written on hotworks and fires in Wales. The number of hotworks and fires in Wales have been released. This has come from a freedom of information request from CE Safety, which is a dedicated health and safety and first aid training provider. So in their recent freedom of information request, they went to several fire rescue services in Wales to try and determine the number of fires that have been reported in the construction sector caused by hotworks. So I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with what hotwork is, but any of you that aren't, hotworks refer to any task that requires using open flames or applying heat or friction, which may generate sparks or heat. And this isn't a sector we cover often, but it is an important thing to cover because hotworks can lead to a major fire if not done properly, not risk assessed properly. And I think it's well known that two thirds of major businesses that suffer a a serious fire or a total loss fire don't actually reopen so to answer the question of how many fires there were um fire service in south wales after this freedom of information request said there were three fires in building under construction caused by hotworks two incidents were due to soldering and one was caused by welding there weren't any injuries reported in any of these incidents so in terms of things that can cause these these fires it could be flying sparks they're the principal risk posed by hotworks but it can also easily become trapped these sparks in cracked pipes gaps holes any other cracks and small openings where they could potentially smolder and cause a fire to break out so as i said not something we often cover brian but the risks are obvious if you don't do a proper risk assessment to this if you're doing hotworks as we said there those sparks are flying it can this lead to a, a serious incident unfortunately in these three fires there were no injuries reported yeah i think one of the key things to note from the story mark is actually a quote from ce safety's director gary ellis who we talked to for the article and he's actually said however no, no matter who does it they must know what kind of has as in hotworks uh, what kind of hazards uh, hotworks present and how to prevent it from causing harm it, it is a major problem in the construction sector yeah, so Brian, you know, rounding off, I think you've got some good news to end the news on this week, haven't you? Yeah, it's a bit of a tough thumper, I think, from our point of view, Mark. Um, it's a fundraising challenge that's been introduced by the Firefighters Charity, which, of course, transacts some great work on behalf of the firefighting community in general. Now, uh, I'm sure many of you will be aware the pandemic's brought many businesses uh, not to a standstill as such, but working very differently. Uh, from the charity's point of view, their fundraising mechanisms have been almost brought to a halt. They're actually talking about the fact that they generate about £10 million per year to run the charity. Uh, they're looking at that estimate being about half this year, so they, they do need funds. What they've done is brought in the challenge for firefighters and their immediate families, etc. And they're asking people to sort of take on their own challenges, like sponsored silences and uh, sponsored gardening efforts, that kind of thing, to try and raise some money. I mean, we've seen... that's one of the great things this uh, epidemic has brought out is the kindness in people and also the amount of great charity it has done and, and you can do it from your own home so if you've been inspired by the people you've seen in the news doing marathons in their gardens or walking up and down stairs in, in the length of a marathon i think what we're saying here is there's another good cause that you could do that for so if you if you can potentially you know keep your health self healthy doing some exercise and, and do it for charity this is definitely a great one to raise charity for because 10 million is a fantastic amount they raise but they're really feeling the pinch right now yeah there are 55,000 members mark of the uk's fire and rescue services and, they, and, and then the dependents of course and we need to be seen to be supporting them i urge all our readers and listeners of the podcasts 
uh, to get behind this campaign. So, Brian, moving on now, um, you recently were able to sit down with Ian Moore, who's the chief executive of um, the Fire Industry Association. So, shall we hear what he had to say with you earlier? interviewee on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Ian Moore, the CEO at the Fire Industry Association. I chatted with Ian about the FIA's all-new innovation forum and online CPD, but first we discussed the key topics of professionalism and competency in the sector. So Ian, there's much talk about raising the bar on professionalism in the fire industry at the present time, and also about the issue of competency. What's your take on this? Um, yeah, competency, I suppose that's the in buzzword, isn't it? I mean, uh, Hackett report if I remember rightly, I've done enough presentations about this, 152 times she mentioned in the report the word competency. So quite clearly there's an issue um, with it or a perceived issue. Um, I happen to think there is an issue, but it, it's not news to us. I mean, I don't really know much about the FIA, but we, as part of our joining criteria, have third-party certification as a must um, for all companies because it is about raising the bar on professionalism. It may annoy a few people saying, well, I don't believe I need to have a third party to tell me I'm good. But really, it's about defining competency. I think we all like to think we're competent in some areas or a lot of areas, some more than others. But, you know, it's about defining it. So I think what what the industry have done pretty well in the competency steering group uh, is about what looks good. And basically, it's a chart of individuals, companies and the proof uh, as in the definition of competency. So you end up with uh, companies, and the easy way I suppose to do that at the moment is third-party certification, but it must be relevant in the, re- you know, the relevant areas. Uh, and also individuals, we set up an awarding organisation way before Grenfell anyway, because uh, we always felt that it's, well, bordering on being farcical, that people are not qualified to work on fire safety systems. And absolutely anybody can walk into a building, they can risk assess it, they can install it, and they can commission it, and they can maintain it without any qualifications, which we never felt is the right thing to do. So we've made a start in one area, which is the fire detection alarm. Uh, we're going to move into other areas as we go along, with to do with portables and extinguishing systems, uh, and maybe risk assessment further down the line. So um, qualifications of individuals, third-party certification company, really puts you in line with starting to raise the bar on professionalism and you look at people like um, gas safe uh, or corgi register as it was in old money that we remember us old people um that you've got to be registered and yet they don't have a fire safe equivalent and that's really what we're striving towards but we're putting the pieces into place and government post grenfell unfortunately took that tragedy to make people be aware of the fact of this competency issue um, and I, I can see us rapidly increasing our level of professionalism. We already have fantastic people whether they're qualified or not. It's a matter of actually then starting to put some qualifications and labels behind people to, to define that competency. Does that kind of cover that Brian for you? That's fine thank you and you mentioned the government there as well and of course they've put forward this new fire safety bill recently. What's your take on that one? Yeah, we've been pretty heavily involved in that. And, and this is kind of the other arm. We, we run under seven councils uh, and the risk assessment of fire engineering is a real concern with this one. Um, 
Let's talk, talk about risk assessment. I think because I've been discussing it fun enough this morning with the Home Office again, and we had quite a long meeting last uh, Wednesday, uh, a pretty collaborative approach using NFCC, Home Office, MHCLG. So all stakeholders, not just FI members, it's been opened up to many others because we wanted everybody's view on this. But it, it seemed like um, they were looking to retrospectively put cladding into the fire risk assessment, basically making the statement that, to clarify that cladding and fire doors sets should be in. Now, fire doors have always been in, um, and I think it's generally accepted. There is an issue to do with checking them, of course, with access to, to buildings, because you know, if you put a warrant together, I mean, the, the end game is you kick in the door um, if they don't answer or to reply to the warrant, so they can expect the door that you've just kicked in and said it doesn't comply. So you've got to be practical about how this all works. But the big discussions we're having with Home Office really at the moment is about, um, again, the word competency comes in because if you're, if you're confident, you also know what you're not competent to do. That's all part of the definition as far as we're concerned. So most fire risk assessors, and I'm not being deriding of anybody here, most, most do not know how to test the cladding to see if it's compliant, not compliant, i.e. doesn't catch fire. Um, and therefore, with risk assessments, you can't suddenly retrospectively turn around and say, well, for the last 20 years, you should have been doing it, therefore you're to blame. And there's been a few cases of fire rescue services taking people to court about these things. But the Home Office this morning actually reassured me um, that it's not the case that they're just looking to retrospectively turn around and say you were responsible for that. It's a matter of moving forward, and that's really what we're all trying to do. But I have a feeling that the way that's going to work with the fire safety bill is that if it is built in, it's the responsible person's responsibility. So the risk assessment will do the risk assessment. But they also have to put a clause in there to say that the external walls need to be tested by an expert. And it's your responsibility to make sure that happens. So, yeah, I think I think the bill is, is good. It's trying to move with the times. Um, there's a lot of practicality issues that we're trying to work on, and we've done quite an extensive reply, which we're just having checked at our board level, because I want everybody's input into this. And that will then go forward to the Home Office as our comments. But we are engaging, and say literally this morning at nine o'clock, I was on the line for about an hour with the Home Office, um, uh, talking about various issues of it. And they are very um, receptive to views, which is good. I think it's a sign of the times now that people are listening to each other about uh, their views on, on legislation and the way forward. And um, yeah, I, I think it's a good piece of work. Um, we're, we're much in praise of it. However, like all things, it does need some fine tuning. Uh, and that's exactly what we're working on at the moment. Okay, so moving a bit closer to home now, and you've recently set up an innovation forum at the FIA. Can you outline the reasoning behind that move and the basic aims of it? Yeah, it's um, it's, it's not a huge thing. It's just kind of starting the process working. I, I've been introducing members to the MTC, the Manufacturing Technology Centre, for the last few years. And um, it's really about raising our opportunities to innovate. I was lucky enough to win the Queen's Award many years ago for video smoke detection, but I remember the immense barriers that we had to go through to, to get forward something we knew was very, very good and did a great job, but it was for the right application uh, at the right time and really kind of worked when nothing else was suitable. 
Um, but we pushed hard at it and eventually got there. But that pain is something that smaller companies really struggle with. And all I was trying to do with this is to just open up a forum where people talk to each other. Uh, there's no exchanging of IP or anything for obvious reasons. I mean, it's it's not there for exchanging specifics. It's more a case of understanding the processes of getting to market or they have a, a product or a system or a solution that's working well in one area. How do they extend that into other areas? Talking about the barriers of standards, whether that be um, British standards, European standards, ISO standards. And then, of course, you've got the, the stuff to do with compliance to codes, uh, sorry, to, uh, compliance to approvals, um, which is immensely expensive. So it's really about everybody exchanging ideas, trying to help each other. With a bit of luck, it becomes just a, a little bit of a club where people talk to each other uh, and hopefully it becomes into more. I mean, my end game, I'll be honest with you, is uh, having a, an innovation centre that we have somewhere in UK. Uh, we came very close to having it about four years ago, actually. But and this is where really that everybody gets to get involved with talking academia, uh, scientists, um, various, you know, the fire and rescue services or NFCC through those guys. So everybody sort of gets involved in understanding and innovating and coming up with some great ideas for the future. But that's for the future. Um, but this is first stage is really just to open up a channel to allow people to talk to each other. You've recently been putting a lot of emphasis, I note, on the FIA's online CPD sessions as well. Very important, of course. How is that progressing? Um, extraordinarily well, actually. I mean, I think it's a sign of the times, um, to be honest. It's um, a lot of people are sat at home. Um, I'd love to say not doing anything. I know what I'm like. It's probably worked harder than anybody, same as everybody else, because you're so available. Um, but there are opportunities to to take advantage of things like this, where you can listen in um, and not have to travel to sites. So the online training is something we invested in almost immediately when we saw this coming. Uh, and, and we've invested heavily with time and effort to make sure the platforms are working well, loads of beta tests. Um, and, and we tend to run these with one person presenting live, and we have another person, as usually one of our technical managers, sat online taking care of the chat lines. We can't open it up because it will just be a, a melee of questions coming across, which makes it very confusing. So the CPD subjects, we're trying to be as interesting as wide as possible. We're inviting industry experts to come in. Uh, we still have to um, set them all up. We still have to have our technical managers online. So it's got a lot of effort to do it. There's no less effort to do this. But what it makes it is, is quite accessible. And um, we've, we've um, been working with our colleagues in the Fire and Rescue Service as well who are listening into these CPDs. We actually had one last week with over 165 people on. And... We didn't appear, from what we've seen, to have any issues technically, and also the content seemed to come across very, very clearly. But this maybe is the new normal. Um, I'm sure people will go back to classrooms because of the, the integration, I suppose, with the, the trainers and, and other people. But it's certainly an opportunity for more remote people. I mean, even overseas training, uh, maybe some people in uh, far-flung parts of the UK that can't get into uh, our Hampton office or to a local um, hotel we're, we're doing these courses in so i think i think we've been you know necessity being the mother invention here we've actually pushed ourselves into doing this and it's working out really well and the subject matters are proving to be very very popular 
The last month he reached a milestone, it's a difficult one actually, of 900 FIA member organisations. Tremendous efforts on the, on the organisation's part. What's, what's the target there, Ian, going forward? I mean, I think everybody puts indicative targets. It's something you put down. I mean, the logical one is a thousand. Um, but it's really about what it gives us. Uh, I, I think it's you have to be careful that you don't sort of just go after members for the sake of it. One, I say there is already that professional barrier in the way that they're all professional companies, as in proven to be professional. So lots of people that don't have third-party certification are professional companies. But those that do, we accept because they are defining that competency. Um, and the more members we have, the more expertise we have to call on. We have hundreds of working groups in different areas. And the wider we go with the more depth, the better we have in the way of information, data, etc. And uh, we get more revenue. Um, but as not-for-profit, we reinvest that into research projects. So obviously, the more money we get, the more we can invest into research. We've done some absolutely fantastic research projects of late. A little bit quieter at the moment based on where we are financially um, as a whole uh, industry but also the lobbying power you know when i when i ring and talk to some mps saying i represent basically a thousand companies they're going to listen and we're finding that uh, at the moment that with the doors are open to us in very many levels all the way up to the fire minister we have meeting coming up with very soon to discuss the issues of the industry and represent it so we we still operate under our councils, so we're still very focused. Um, so we know that we're talking specifically at a meeting about, say, extinguishing or fire engineering. Um, so we, we, we do structure them that way. But if we grow any bigger, we'll probably end up making more councils so we can keep the focus and keep the uh, number of people supporting it. So we have individual technical managers on every discipline, very, very highly trained people. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we're looking to grow like everybody else but it's for the right reasons. And just to close in, I'm sure lots of individuals and companies indeed have got questions, key questions for the FIA at the present time under the lockdown scenario. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Um, the website has a lot. We, we've, we've worked extensively on this uh, COVID-19 and, and what it actually means. A lot of information comes out for government and it's, it's the clarity is usually issued. Trying to say, what exactly does this mean? And we've tried very hard not to try and clarify what the government is saying. So we've actually gone to them and asked them to make a statement. So it's not our interpretation because uh, the pitfalls on that, you can probably imagine, are quite awful. Um, it could even be legal issues if we're actually telling people it's okay to do something when it's not. So we've just basically constantly gone to the government. We've got statements from various uh, people at very high level. Uh, even the Secretary of State, uh, James Brokenshire, sent us a letter through, which we put up there. They described what we're doing, what the manufacturers of key equipment are doing. Um, so it's, it's about getting information, and you can get that information on our website, um, which is fia.uk.com. Excuse the plug. Um, but everything is there. There are contact details for people to come through, and we are fully operational. We do have some staff on furlough like everybody else, but all of their work is being covered. Uh, and we have an incredibly diligent, hardworking crew of 10 people still answering all questions coming in and supporting and not only members, but also public coming through with lots of questions. But all those numbers are up on the website, all the email addresses, and by all means, give us a call at any time. 
Fantastic. That's great. Thank you very much, Ian. Thanks, Ian, and thanks, Brian, for that. In our next segment, we always get you guys to send in your own questions. And for the next edition, we'll ask you to send in your questions once again using the hashtag FSM podcast. We're delighted today to be joined by Salvi Vitozzi, who's regional sales manager for the Southeast at Apollo Fire Detectors. Morning, Salvi. Thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much for having me. So... We want to get straight into this. I, mean, I know Apollo have got a lot of things in the product pipeline. So for those that aren't familiar what's coming next for Apollo, can you tell us what's next in your product pipeline? Yeah, certainly. So as you said, we do have a, a bit in the pipeline. Obviously, current situations, that's taken a bit of a hit for future projects, um, like a bit of a delay. But right now, um, you may have seen already, we've just launched or relaunched our three-channel I.O., so the standards changed and uh, the predecessor model had to be reworked and revamped. Um, and so it's now gone through all its approvals, all its pass, and now we're in a position where we can relaunch it. Um, as you know from the product, gives you one address and then three different I.O. channels, which helps stuff like sprinklers or fire dampeners and situations like that. The other one that we're excited about is uh, a whole new product for us is in our expander range, our hybrid range. It's our multi-sensor. Um, so we have a heat and we have a, uh, smoke detectors, but now we have our multis and that will complement with the standard bases and any of the AV bases as well. And speaking of expander, you know, not all of our listeners um, and readers of Fire Safety Matters are going to be familiar with the unique selling points, you know, the USPs of expanders. Can you tell us a bit more of the USPs and also what kind of locations can it be installed in? Okay, so expander is a hybrid system. So it utilizes both the best worlds of the wired market and now the wireless market. So take the, it has all the benefits of said for the wireless. So you've got your quick installation. Um, you've got demountable buildings where you can't run cables to, um, and also stuff like heritage sites where the radio signal doesn't really like going through the really thick walls. Um, but because it's it's a hybrid system, uh, we're finding quite a lot for schools like it a lot as well, so they can run a normal wired system within the school and then, as I said, add the demountables as needed. Um, we're also finding a very... Uh, a uh, unique uh, scenario with it at the moment with high-rise buildings. So post Grenfell, and I appreciate I did listen to your podcast before, um, a lot of people are now doing um, temporary fireworks. So what they're doing is they can't enter the, the actual dwellings. They're putting in expander so the engineers can enter as, as and when they need to. So it means the speed of installation, ease of installation, and minimal disruption to the end user as well, whilst still maintaining a wide system for the main building. Now, before this podcast came out, we on the first episode, we asked people to use the hashtag FSM podcast to get their questions in. And, and one of the questions that came in was just asking for a little bit more information um, on kind of case studies and locations where Apollo's um, kits installed. So for those of our listeners, the you know, fire safety managers, the people with you know purchasing power, can you give us a couple of interesting case studies of where Apollo has worked? Yeah, well, as you can imagine, being uh, 
who Apollo are, we're, we're in all sorts of vertical markets and sectors, um, you know, from schools through to, uh, through to small little retail units. And obviously to list them all, it's, it's going to be too long. A couple of nice ones that we've had recently, uh, touching back on the expander we've just spoke about. So we've done um, Kent and Canterbury Hospital, um, where they upgraded an area of their hospital because the fire alarm system wasn't um, up to standard. So they've upgraded it. And, but because it's always a 24-hour operation, they couldn't have any downtime to run cables. So Expander was the use there. Uh, that was surveyed at the very end of last year in order at the very beginning of this year. And then our one of our flagship projects is 22 Bishopsgate in London. Um, it's the site that has the most Soteria um, devices in it. Obviously, it's a 62-storey building. And right now in its shell and core, it's it's up as the highest Soteria products. Obviously, we've still got the fit-outs to do. So the exact numbers, I won't even fathom a guess on how many devices will go into that building. Um, but yeah, we cover all different markets um, internationally. Um, you can look at our, our case studies online. You know, we do oil sites, uh, we do harbours, we do um, airports and so forth. So, so the list is, is quite long. Well, I'd be remiss if I wasn't able to ask you about how, you know, the current COVID-19 uh, pandemic has affected you. How are you guys uh, coping? Is your headquarters always down and haven't? What's been the knock-on effect for you guys? Are you still manufacturing? Are you still fully operational? Yeah, as before I go into that, I, you know, from everyone from Apollo, we'll send our, our deep and consult condolences to everyone affected by this. You know, it's a hard time for everybody from a business point of view and also a personal point of view. But from a, from our point of view, you know, we're always committed to keeping people safe from fire. You know, we have, we have taken the appropriate steps within our operation to ensure the safety of our staff. So we've increased um, the, we increased our social distancing with the building. Uh, I've been told that we've also done a one-way system around the building so staff don't overlap themselves in corridors. Um, but all this is happening. We are still able to uh, process and ship orders as normal. Um whilst obviously implementing all the health and safety in, in question. Our supply chain hasn't, hasn't been affected, even from the beginning of this, which is good. You know, the good thing is that we're, we're in heaven, everything's made in, almost it's made in here in the UK, so that's all good for us. We're holding additional stock of key components, so again, production isn't an issue when it comes to that. And we are looking to hold a little bit of buffer stock. However, the longer this goes on and the more social distancing we're having to put in, that may be affected. But right now, we're, we're, we're fine. Um, the, the, the only downside about this whole COVID thing is, you know, Apollo's been doing this for 40 years. This is the biggest single challenge Apollo's seen, both to protection of staff and to provide the, the industry and our customers of what they need. Um, so, yeah, so, so we are well, we are good, uh, all like everyone else is all non-essential staff are working from home uh, and only uh, essential staff are going into the building like the production team and we're simply adhering to the government's guidelines and, and we're, we're heeding what they're saying to us. Salvi, thanks very much for your time today um, but if people want to get in touch with you or to get in touch with Apollo Fire Detectors what's the easiest way to uh, drop you a line? Okay, so all the regional sales managers have um, their own LinkedIn account, and so does obviously Apollo. Uh, but the conventional ways, uh, so general inquiries, if you go to inquiries at apollo-fire.com, the phone lines are still connecting to custom services and technical, and that's on 02392 
492-412. And again, if you've got any of our per- our own business email addresses, just give our guys a call. We're always available to try and help where we can. Well, Sammy, thanks for your time today. And obviously that covered a lot of ground because Apollo can go into so many various different uh, premises and have so many different solutions. Our next interview and the next edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast will be with Mark Rivers from Detector Testers. If you'd like to get your questions in ahead of that, please use Twitter or LinkedIn and just use the hashtag FSM podcast. Thanks, Salvi. We really appreciate your time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. You can read more on these issues and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. Please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore in upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMpodcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at fsmatters underscore mag. As a reminder, the Fire Safety Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. On the next podcast, we'll be hearing from Stephen Adams, the CEO at BAFE, and also Mark Rivers, Key Account Manager at Detector Testers. As always, we'll feature our regular legal review with Fire Safety Lawyer Warren Spencer. We'll see you then.